This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Well, we know that high mortgage rates are impacting some important decisions in our lives right now, but would these high rates, as well as some of the problems around getting a house right now, impact other decisions in our lives, even things like getting married? Well, believe it or not, the ownership of a home and its value can be an important factor into the success or failure of a marriage. Corinne Lowe is an associate professor of business economics and public policy here at the Wharton School. She's done research into this, and she joins us right now. Corinne, great to talk to you again. Great to be here again, Dan. This is interesting. I mean, you're talking about something I think that a lot of couples who could potentially get married wouldn't necessarily consider, but there is a correlation between owning a home and the success or failure of a marriage. Yeah, that's right. So I have new research out together with Jean Lafortune, um, and it's a paper we call Collateralized Marriage because we talk about how a home and other assets act as collateral in the marriage contract. So while marriage might have some romantic components, it's also a legal contract, and that legal contract specifies you know, what happens if the marriage doesn't work out. And what we talk about in the paper is that for people who are able to afford a home or have other assets, that contract has this extra strength of collateral because that collateral, that home, is going to be divided in case the relationship doesn't work out. And it used to be that marriage was sort of the only contract that was available to people if they wanted to form a relationship and have children. But that's not the case anymore. Since around the 90s, we've had many um, legal changes that have made non-marital fertility a possibility that still enables fathers to have rights and responsibilities. And so that meant that people now have two substitutes that they can consider. They can think about, do I want to enter this relationship, start this family in, with a non-marital contract, which still offers some rights and responsibilities, or do I want the marriage contract? And what we show in the paper is that for people who are able to afford the, a home, the marriage contract is stronger and better. But for people who aren't, those two contracts are going to be more similar. But the dynamic we obviously have right now in terms of the housing sector is unique because you have mortgage rates that are up around 8%. You had so many people that refinanced mortgages a couple of years ago and kind of are, are, are in that area. Uh, and, and then you also have the, uh, the lower level of housing that's available in general. Yep. So how are those dynamics potentially impacting some of those decisions right now? Yeah, I mean, based on my research, you know, what we use is we use variation in house prices at the time that people are entering into a relationship. And we, then we look at how that impacts the decision to get married and then what the marriage looks like. And for people who were, had, were facing cheaper housing prices at the time they entered a relationship and therefore are more likely to own a home, we find that their relationships are stronger in a couple of key ways. So Getting into a marriage involves taking certain kinds of risks. It involves saying, all right, I'm going to put my interests to the side in this case and do what's right for us as a family or us as a couple. But that's risky if the relationship could dissolve and you could be left, you know, sort of bearing the burden of those risks that you took. So take, for example, a couple that has to decide one of us has a really good job opportunity in another city. It's going to negatively impact the other person's career. Do we go for it? If you're not married, you're probably unlikely to do that because that's a giant risk. But if you're married, you would say, okay, we have that assurance that we're in this contract. And if there's assets, those assets are going to be divided. If one person's career really takes off and that helps them you know, accumulate a lot of assets, those assets are going to be divided. And I know it sounds unromantic to talk about it that way, but that is part of what marriage is about. It is a legal contract. Nobody enters into a marriage thinking it's going to end. And yet, 
that possibility is there. We just know that the statistics mean that that possibility is there, right? And so, so nowadays, these couples that are facing these super high mortgage rates, what my research says is that because they're, it's going to be harder for them to own a home, they're more likely to maintain as staying as renters, um, that that might affect the type of relationship they choose. That might cause them to be less likely to get married. And if they do marry, it might cause them to be more cautious about taking those kinds of risks. One of those risks is somebody taking an extended period of parental leave, usually it's the mother, to stay home with kids. Because think about the risk that creates to her. So now she's putting her career growth to the side, focusing on the kids. The other person, usually it's the man, is still continuing to invest in his career. His salary is growing. If you don't have a contract and he can just walk away, you could be left with that lower earning potential. Well, meanwhile, he has this great career that he's built. And that's what the marriage contract protects people from. And But without assets, without accumulating those assets, like a house, you have much less protection. And a home is the main assets that people in the United States have. And so these couples that are facing these very high mortgage rates are also facing risks to their relationship security. And obviously we know that the the, the potential of a breakup or a divorce is possible with the historic uh, uh, focus on uh, on divorce rates to begin with. So it it's part of the the formula, unfortunately, that you go into when you're going into a marriage that you know it's a possibility, but you maybe don't think about it on a day-to-day -day basis. That's right. And so, you know, sometimes people ask me, they're like, do you really think people go around kind of maximizing these utility functions with like probability of divorce in there? And I don't, right? But I do think that something happened when divorce became much easier in this country because it used to be very uncommon and it used to be difficult. And when it became much easier and it became unilateral that one person could decide, oh, I want to walk away from the marriage, I think women heard stories. I think they heard stories from my aunt or my mom's friend got really screwed over in a divorce, right? Because she spent her whole life staying home with the kids, taking care of the house, investing in, that's still economic value you're creating through home production, right? But investing in that form of economic value that you can't take with you as easily if the relationship dissolves. Meanwhile, her husband became partner at the law firm, became a surgeon, had all of this money, and she got screwed over. And so I think women heard those stories and they said, I need to protect myself, right? And that's how I think people think about it. You know, it's not, okay, I have this probability I'm placing on this, but it's, okay, I'm taking into account these stories that I've heard, and then I'm going to be more cautious in my decisions. And so that means if I enter a relationship where I don't have the security of a home, I'm going to be more cautious in the investments I'm going to make in my family. And that ultimately ends up affecting kids because those investments are things that are good for child human capital. Um, that's a fancy word economists use to, you know, it's like it's all those time you spend doing homework with your kids on the kitchen table, right? But that's an investment. That's choosing yeah. to take your time and instead of putting it into your own career, instead of investing, finishing those legal briefs or, you know, staying up late working on that spreadsheet to advance your own career, you're investing in your child's future potential, right? And again, those investments are risky if you don't have any kind of insurance. Well, you're talking about you know, what is a very unique and kind of, it seems like, multifaceted trickle-down effect from this component. Like, as you said, if women are more hesitant or, or restrained about some of these decisions, then it impacts the decision of marriage. Then it impacts the decision of career and of having children, which we know has a, a larger economic impact on the country you know, multiplied by millions of people as we go down the road. And investing in children because that affects economic inequality. Because if people who are wealthier and able to 
um, afford homes are more able to take this risk of investing in children, then that's going to create a further spread between the have and the have nots. And so I also connect this to, um, there's this really interesting book right now um, by Melissa Kearney that's been getting a lot of attention called The Two-Parent Privilege. And she talks about how much better off children are when they're part of a two-parent married household, you know, rather than this sort of non-marital fertility setup that I talked about. And I think we need to look at the economic forces that might make it harder for or easier for families to form that relationship. And so if we know that owning a home is something that provides the collateral, that's why our paper is called collateralized marriage, that provides the security for that contract, how do we make it easier for people who are poor to access this, especially at a time of 8% mortgage rates? So I was going to ask you, is there, in the research that you did, is there a level or value of the home, of the couple coming together, that seemingly kind of ensures or at least leads to a greater level of security within the relationship. Yeah, so I think what we link it back to is about the contract that you have access to, you know? And so we think people, when they have access to this contract, because when house prices were low, people choose this stronger relationship with more risk, more skin in the game, right? More, I'm going to make these investments and then that's okay because I know that later, you know, I'm going to be taken care of. When they have access to these lower housing prices and more ability to do it, that's what people are choosing to do. Um, And so we think that that has value to people. And our issue is the policy changes in the U.S. that have weakened the marriage contract through making divorce, you know, a lot easier, making it one-sided, that one person can just say, I want to get divorced. That didn't used to be the case. It used to be if one person wanted to get divorced, they had to compensate the other person for walking away to get that person's agreement, right? There's a lot of benefits of making divorce easier. And I don't want to downplay that. Of course, we can think about women in, you know, abusive or otherwise, you know, really bad marriages that need that ability to walk away. But I don't think we've talked about the other side of it. We've made the marriage contract weaker. We've made this non-marital fertility contract stronger. And now we've created this bifurcation where for people with assets, the marriage contract still has extra teeth because the marriage contract says whatever assets are accumulated during the marriage, no matter who paid for them, those are to be divided at the time of divorce. The non-marital fertility contract specifies child support, it specifies parental rights, but it doesn't say anything about assets. So for people with assets, they still have access to this stronger contract that we call collateralized marriage. And so they're going to choose that marriage contract. The issue is we've taken that option away for people without assets. Now, there is no way for them to access this stronger contract. And this stronger contract is what we think is also creating a better environment to invest more in children. Again, contributing to this broader inequality um, in a country that's already deeply unequal. So you start with people have more assets, people have less assets, and now you're exacerbating this by saying that people with more assets can also access this stronger relationship that, again, as Melissa Kearney's book showed, is better for children. So uh, unfortunately, I I don't think that the policy side is going to change anytime soon. So then what do you think is the takeaway and the thought process that couples should really have as they move forward with this component, as they work on their marriages and they try and make them strong. Yeah, so I think that there are takeaways for couples to say, if you want to be able to take these kinds of risks that are mutually beneficial, you need to figure out how are you offering that security? 
So if you can't afford a home, what are the other things you're doing to ensure that you're offering that security to the person who's going to take those risks, right? So how are you structuring your relationship? Even though, again, nobody wants to think about divorce. It's an unromantic thing to think about at the time you enter into a relationship. But how are you setting things up so that both people are protected in the case of this future scenario where one person has spent their time investing more in children, one person has spent more time investing in a career, how do you make sure that both people are protected? But I also don't think that we can give up from the policy side because there are things that we can do to make home ownership easier for people with lower assets, right? We can create programs where the federal government sort of backs um, people with lower levels of assets or worse credit so they can be get those prime mortgage rates because people with, you know, worse credit are facing those subprime rates that aren't even the 8% mortgage. They're facing yeah. a higher rate, right? So yeah. we can, the federal government can do things to make sure that people are able to get that insurance um, that could be backed by, you know, a federal agency. The federal government also could create programs to help people with down payments or, you know, to again, back the mortgages so that there is no down payment required. And so there are things that we can do to make it easier for people to access that collateral. And I think it's something that we need to think about, especially in the current environment that we're in, where mortgage rates are high in a lot of cities, properties are scarce and expensive, and all of this is going to be deepening inequality. Corinne, great to talk with you. Thanks very much. Always great to be here, Dan. Thank you. You too as well. Corinne Lowe, Associate Professor of Business Economics and Public Policy here at the Wharton School. To explore more content from the Wharton School, visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.